Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika Liz. This week, we're discussing the season finale of Star Trek Discovery's season four, Coming Home. What a great title. And we were totally wrong in all of our speculation last week, but it looked for a minute there like we were going to get our Voyager ending with them stranded outside the galaxy or having to make the decades-long journey home. And I was like, yes. It was definitely close. But then, you know, Tennessee was like, we're going to do it for you. Yeah, we like you guys. You answer all right. Before we get deep into Discovery, can I give a shout out to another podcast? Of course. I know which one. (laughs) We are not talking about Picard in any detail until next week. So if what you need is two women who are friends talking about Star Trek Picard, I highly recommend the podcast Where's Beverly? It's one of those ones where one host each episode of this season has absolutely hated this episode and then gone on to talk at length about all the good things they found in it. So it's just a really nice time and I've decided that I love them and I want to be their friend. And I was telling my flatmate about it and she said, kind of sounds like they're stealing your gimmick. And I was like, it's not a gimmick. It's just how all podcasts should be. (laughs) So that's That's where it's Beverly and they are delightful. Very good. Yay. And they also raised the question of which men in Star Trek would not bring you tampons when you're having a bad period day. And I have a lot of thoughts about that that I think we should get into in a future episode. (laughs) I kind of hope that they've figured out a better way to deal with menstruation in the future. It's it's my goal. That's absolutely the dream. (laughs) But, okay, no, I'm not going to impose menstrual-related time travel shenanigans on this scenario because then we just get into talking about Picard. Let's talk about the Discovery finale. Okay. We have to stay on topic. Stay on topic. Stay on topic. I've started our timer. So where should we start? Let's start with how fantastically wrong we were about everything and yet it felt like we were on the right track in a macro kind of way and it really held together. Mm. It was a very solid finale, second time in a row. Good job, Discovery. Yes, we're proud of you. I I have not forgiven them for the first two seasons, <laughs> so so I just I just want to start mm. with that, and then I guess I'll jump to book. <laughs> I'm just gonna jump around all over the place, but I'm gonna jump right to Please. book's big speech that he gives to Ten C. Yes, I'm gonna say two things about this. The first is that I struggle to believe in their ability to communicate that well, that quickly. Just got to say, it strained my credulity a little, but I hand wave it as, oh yeah, Star Trek. The Universal Translator doesn't make sense anyway, so sure, they can do it. But Rillick and Book and Michael were all using words that I was like, you guys, you can't turn to that into math and lights and like emotionals. There's only 16 of those emotions. How are you doing this? But it's fine. I had the same feeling, but like you, I chose to hand wave it. Right. It's related to my main point, which is that Book didn't use any of his empathic powers. He just gave a, a nice speech, which is fine. And I'm glad that Book got to give that speech and got to be the person to stand up for Quajon and the displaced peoples of wherever else the Tennessee was farming and <laughs> didn't notice that, that people were alive down there. But I would have liked it better if, if he'd used his empathic abilities instead of his florid words. I agree. <laughs> if only because following a Sonequa Martin Green speech, it's a real challenge. And he did use his empathy to make a connection, but you're right, it was primarily verbal. And I do feel like they missed a chance there. Like, Book has not used his empathy since his planet was lost, and they could have made more of that than they did. But that's a nitpick. I really liked what yeah. we got. That was really my only 
and it's not even really negative, but that was my only negative thing to say about the episode. So I thought I'd start with that yes. so that we can go and just be positive for the rest of the episode. <laughs> I did like that, yes, so he his forehead glowed, which yes. is a presentation of his powers. And then all of the Tensi like also glowed in what you would sort of, you could construe was their forehead. And so part of him was like, wait, what if Book is like a descendant of the Tensi? <laughs> Or the Tensi are descendant of, but like, if I very, very briefly, I was like, <laughs> oh, is this going to be like the twist? Is that they actually are like related? But that didn't happen. No, and I'm kind of relieved. I feel like <laughs> the evolutionary links between uh, giant gas giant CGI people and book <laughs> were a bit too much. <laughs> It's very anime. If this were an anime, yes. that's what would have happened. Yes. Just, just putting that out there. You have to understand my background. I understand. And it would also be a bit, Cisco is of the prophets, and I hated that. So, you know. Yes. I, I was going to say fully human book. I don't actually think he's human, but fully whatever he is book is, is fully the whatever way. he is. You know. <laughs> yeah, we don't know what he is. He's magic. Yeah. He, he's a Disney prince and we love him. I really enjoyed that this finale was so quiet and the action scenes were about chasing and fighting the elements more than pew pew pew, though I obviously love the pew 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 as well. But this just, we were talking about last week about how everything is real Star Trek, but this feels particularly like it comes from that classic intellectual mould. And Absolutely. I really liked that they stuck with that and that the great tension was can we talk to these people in time and can we evacuate these people in time? And also Tarka was there, but, you know, what can you do? Okay, I'm not negative about Tarka, but I'm also not positive about Tarka. Like, <laughs> Tarka, I think this entire season would have benefited from not having Tarka. That's my hot take. He was unnecessary in order for book to betray michael they he needed to be pushed by someone who and manipulated by someone who was not book and so they made tarka but for me just like it would have been stronger for savic to be valeris it would have been stronger for book to be tarka yeah but then he probably would have had to die or at least suffer a much greater punishment i don't think his relationship with michael would have survived but they, they could have had more communication and less pew pew yeah, true. They didn't really need that part with, uh, although it gave Nadoya something amazing to do. So I do forgive it for that because I yes. loved her subplot. I like your note here that she finally gets a characterization upgrade. And I agree. And we'll get to that. I guess my feeling is that we needed an antagonist and Taka was good in that role, but and it's maybe just because we are not viewers who sympathise with the sad white man, unless he's played by Jason Isaacs. He just wasn't the guy for us. Or James Callas. Or James Callas. They missed the vote not casting James Callas. I would have liked Tarka. <laughs> I don't want to criticise Sean Doyle's performance because yeah. I think he was really good, but I just think he was an octagonal peg in a sexagonal hole. Ooh. Sexagonal. Uh, you know, close, but not quite there. I really liked, I will say, uh, Tarka's comeuppance, I guess yes. you can call it, where he finally, like too late, came to the, the realization that Oros wouldn't want this and that Oros would be saying the same thing in the book was that was very strong that was really it was like, oh, yeah, you finally like made me care about your relationship with Oros. Good job. Literally in the last 30 seconds Literally of yes. Tarka's existence. Yeah. I don't blame Sean Doyle at all. I blame the writers. Yeah. Because they didn't make me invested in Tarka as an antagonist or as a sad story. Nothing about Tarka. Well, I just don't care. I... I... Do you think that a show which name-dropped Elon Musk multiple times in its first two seasons, going on to create an antagonist who is basically a tech bro, is 
a really great evolution and I love that for them. I just, like, I'm watching The Dropout and I'm watching We Crashed at the same time and Elizabeth Holmes is much more interesting than mm. Adam Newman. Mm-hmm. I am never going to be on the side of the male tech bro disruptor, whatever. Obviously, I am not on Elizabeth Holmes's side. Like, she is straight up not a good person, but I'm interested in her because I... Interested, right. I can feel a connection with her. And Tarka, like, you know, everyone's been saying, everybody lives, nobody dies. And it's like, well, like, I kind of mm. think Tarka died. <laughs> but, but I also don't care. <laughs> like I said. Yeah, he doesn't count. He doesn't count. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I sent the ninth doctor, everybody lives Rose, just this once, everybody lives GIF. A- and Tarka, he just it doesn't count. Maybe he got blown up. Maybe he is in his paradise alternate universe maybe he's been thrown back to the terran empire in the 23rd century and he's not even going to notice it's he's in the past because he's not good at history but don't care he's gone he's gone he went somewhere he, i still like the the tennessee saved book they could have saved him too and like they, they talked to him about they stuff and I, I don't know i can imagine stories being told but i never want to watch them so that's my take I think he belongs to the fanfic writers now, and I'm very happy for them, and goodbye, Taka. Before we get on to Nadoya, let's finish off Book with what do you think Mm. of Book's resolution and his punishment? I was once again wrong about the nature of his punishment, but I really like it, and I think this is exactly what restorative justice looks like. I do not like that he doesn't have an end to his punishment like part of the point of state punishment is that it's finite and it has an ending but i would also guess that it's not going to take more than a year at most to use the vast resources of the federation to resettle and rehome all those people i assume they didn't give it a timetable because they didn't want to paint themselves into corona about where book is next season that's agree (laughs) i think it was meta not not truth also in story we can say we don't know how long it takes but we assume it will be this period and book will be with us for the whole project but so since it is literally almost word for word what i wanted for ben solo i strongly approve (laughs) and he even gets to take his cat that's right like this is beautiful i think Despite the the isolytic weapon and the blowing up of Greg, he is basically a non-violent offender. And also I think that helping people rebuild will be really good for his psyche. Yes. So, right. Well done, the Federation justice system. <laughs> so now Nadoya, because she also sort of gets what one could call the, you know, redemption arc. So the first thing she did that impressed me was that she came right out and said, yeah, that was me. I did that. (laughs) And there was no squirrely moment of looking around as, you know, am I going to say it? She just admitted it and explained her reasoning and accepted her punishment. So that was good. But then I liked that Michael and Rillick realized that they could use her knowledge and that she would help in their certain situation. It sort of reminded me of, of, you know, let's get Emperor Georgiou to help us out here. Yes. (laughs) So that was nice. And then I was very upset when she first volunteered for the mission because she was taking Detmer's place and it really felt like we're going to sacrifice this suddenly complex black woman for Mm. Kayla Detmer because she's a part of the bridge crew and we care about her more and I didn't like that. I had a rant all prepared. (laughs) I didn't like that at all. No. Because it was like wait you're you're finally like making Nodoya into more than what she was and then you're just gonna kill her off and have it specifically be in place of Detmer. I didn't like that at all. But then she didn't die. <laughs> she didn't die. She gets to come back. She still has her job. She's she's doing well. She's doing great. I was like, this is wonderful. She she wasn't burned. Nothing bad happened to Nadoya. And I was like, great. I approve. 
Nadoya's story here actually sort of reminds me of Katrina Cornwell in season one, where she sort of turns up and she's just a plot device, and little by little she gets more and more characterization until you get to Leith and she becomes a fully fledged character and then does not die. You know, she was meant to die at the end of Leith, she's saved, she's saved again later in the season, and she makes it two seasons before she. Let's not talk about it. That is how I feel about Endoya, that she is organically becoming a fully-fledged character and a member of the wider ensemble, and I'm delighted. It was great. I really hope we see more of her next season. If she joins Starfleet and has some kind of uh, professional rivalry or conflict with Vance, that would be really interesting. Amazing. She could teach with Tilly, too. I can see her as the stricter version yes. of Tilly, you know, they would be like good to, to balance it out. I think that would be good. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So in the 32nd century Starfleet Academy series that probably doesn't really exist, <laughs> we can add Endoya to Tilly yeah. as part of the adult character lineup. You heard it here first. <laughs> With all that power we have over Paramount. Um, one other thing that I wasn't actually expecting, but I didn't mention it last week, that uh, I expect Zora to eventually get a holographic body. And I really thought when they said Zora was beaming in, I was like, is it going to be a person? But it was just like a blinking thing. So it was not. I had the exact same assumption. <laughs> and I do think that even if she doesn't necessarily uncouple from the ship, because she was very adamant and won her right to stay as part mm -hmm. of Discovery, I do think she is eventually going to manifest a humanoid holographic form. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, just to, you know, fit in with the crew. It's one thing to say that she's a member of the crew, and they do really do treat her like one. Yeah. Everybody in Discovery accepts it straightforward, but I think it would be easier for the audience to see her as a mm. member of the crew if she was sometimes. It doesn't have to be all the time. I like the idea of, I'm a ship, and when I'm like on vacation, <laughs> I'm, I'm me. Yeah. She could even be like a different body every time. That would be fun too. A rotating <laughs> cast of Zoras of different races and sizes and Amazing. ages. Yes. You know, she just wants to experience the full range of humanoid life, existence. That's nice. I'm so happy for her with this thing that we just made up. I'm glad that she got to go on the away mission with everybody. I know! Except Hugh, which was also so, so sweet. The engineers couldn't go, and so Hugh stayed with them. That was also, I was like, yeah. But also I think it's a really healthy choice for him because he thinks Book has died and Book was his mm -hmm. patient. And so instead of forcing himself to push through and do the work, he goes to be with his family instead. I think that's good for him. It is good for him, given that that's one thing that wasn't resolved at all is Hugh's plotline. I feel like it ends with him and Paul going on vacation and that is going to be a really and that's good. <laughs> key, key part of his recovery. Because if nothing else, burnout is like, yes. you know, you need that rest. And I love seeing Dr. Pollard again. I would add Dr. Pollard to my lineup of the Starfleet Academy spin-off. Not because it needs her, but because I personally like her. She had good hair too. I was really into her hair. She always has good hair. I love seeing Dr. Pollard too. The look she gives Hugh when he pulls her away so that Saru and Tarina can have a private moment. I don't want to suggest that the Doctors of Discovery are in any way violating the bounds of patient confidentiality, but they have the best gossip. <laughs> I mean, in other series, the Doctors have definitely <laughs> thrown... <laughs> confidentiality at the window so oh yeah yeah <laughs> a little light gossip is the is the least of it discovery doesn't even have like private rooms in its sick bay i saw a tumblr post asking like if you're getting your pap smear is wharf just on the next bio bed over probably that's <laughs> like, what happens here you go guys i have questions maybe that's something that's easier to do in the future too let's hope Let's, let's, let's really hope. Going back to book, but I want to talk about Michael mm -hmm. and Soniqua's absolute devastation when he's lost. She's crying and I'm like, oh, the fanboys are going to hate this. And I really resented myself for having that thought because she's giving a, the performance of her life and Michael is 
grieving and yet pulling it together and doing her job as she should so I don't need the fanboys in my head for this really great scene. It reminded me of my favorite Katrina Cornwell scene where they come to Starbase One and it's been destroyed and she is incapable of talking for, for a few seconds and so I really love the contrast between my devastation is so much that I completely freeze and my devastation is so much that I cannot control myself and I'm sobbing openly on the bridge and yes. I think that those are both hugely valid they're wonderful examples of trauma <laughs> in media that I can add to my repertoire and <laughs> I just Sonequa Martin-Green's performance was amazing it always is she's just so good but that was award-worthy, if anything deserves awards, that yeah. absolute, like, the relief to absolute sorrow, to pulling it all in and forcing it away so that you can do your job, and being able to do that and still you could still see the sorrow. Yes. <laughs> like, even as she was saying, we got to get this done, and she was getting herself under control, it was still in the tone of her voice. It was still in her eyes. It was all still there, but she was also completely in control of it. And that was an amazing performance. It was just beautiful. And even though I didn't believe Book had died, <laughs> I completely <laughs> believed Michael's absolute pain and that even if he was alive she was still traumatized by this and was going to be like dealing with it because it was so horrible i also thought of that cornwell scene in the war without the war within i honestly think of that scene quite a lot no reason and what struck me is that in that moment cat was completely alone she is leading a crew that still doesn't quite like, they've become closer, but they're still not quite a family, and she is not a member of that family. And only only Saru turns to her, and he is asking about her orders, not whether she's okay. Whereas Michael, four years and 900 years later, is with her family, and President Rillick, who everyone except us hated at the beginning, offers her physical comfort in the form of a hand on the shoulder. And that was just remarkable to me in terms of what Starfleet can be in the 32nd century. And the other thing that struck me was that, you know, the first two seasons, Michael really struggled with emotional regulation, you know, too much, too little. When she released her emotions, she had trouble coping with them. Mm -hmm. And she's just come so far from the officer she was in season one. I really like your comment about this is what Starfleet can be in 3189. Mm. Because one of the things that always comes up in discussions of Star Trek, and especially when we bring up this whole emotion, emotions on the bridge idea, is that in the military, you have to react a certain way and you're not allowed to have those emotional outbursts because the mission and the order I have no idea what a group of soldiers is called, sorry. <laughs> it has to come first before the individual. Yes. And it's certainly Starfleet has things like rank. It has things like regulations. It has court martials. It has uniforms. There are many mm. trappings of the military in Starfleet. And so I understand, and even Ben, the person who says that Starfleet is at least partly military. Yeah. And so I get it when people are like, how is this captain reacting in a way that a soldier would not? But mm -hmm. I think that that acceptance on their bridge and how everybody came together and everybody was treating Michael as a person who was going through a huge loss as well as their captain. It's not like they stopped respecting her as their captain in order to see her as Michael. They just were treating her as their friend as well. And that's certainly something that happens with like, I mean, the whole Kirk and Spock 
relationship is based on that. In all Star Treks, there are these relationships that are somewhere between friend and family and more than just crewmate and captain. And I like this idea that Starfleet has moved from, and like Discovery is a really good way of showing it because, yeah, so in the first season we have Kat being very stoic in her grief and Saru asking about his orders. And then we get Michael being very openly emotional in her grief, but still being able to give her orders. That's proving that Starfleet is, even if it has all the trappings of this military, it is not based in a defensive, ordered, rule-driven reality. Right. And it doesn't have to be because it's not about defending Earth. It's about exploring space. Right. You know, I saw a criticism of Star Trek Picard recently that uh, Picard is insufficiently militaristic, not like the good old days in The Next Generation. I increasingly think that maybe people have just never seen The Next Generation and are making this stuff up in their heads. I, um... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I have, I have no... I have... <laughs> nope. Even, like, the first season, the entire first season, no one is ever, like, not a ridiculous absurdist. Like, it's just not true. Like, like maybe when they're fighting the Borg or when he's, like, going through torture or whatever, like, maybe then Picard is a little bit militaristic. But that's it. That's the thing, like... The military turns, like in Chain of Command, are memorable because they are so unusual to the setting. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. But I definitely feel like Discovery marks a point where they've really found a way to balance the the need for a pseudo-military to be collectivist in a way. Everyone is completely dependent on everyone else to do their jobs and carry out their orders for their survival. But they haven't lost their individuality. And I just said it was a perfect balance, and then I thought about this season, and I was like, no, they have not perfected that balance. They are still trying. But they are trying. I think I'm going to give them a gold star for that. (laughs) It makes the annoying bridge crew scenes that I still find annoying, but I like the idea that what they're trying to get across with all of that is that everyone matters. Everyone's opinion matters, everyone's feelings matter, everyone's backstory matters, Mm. that there is this sort of underlying, we're all in this together, and no one person is more important than another person, even if one person over here is the captain and one person over here is an ensign, or like Christopher, who (laughs) we just met, (laughs) and who got blown up and I was convinced he was going to be that sacrificial lamb, but he was fine. (laughs) Just like Nanoia, nothing bad happened to him. This does feel like the Star Trek equivalent of Doctor Who under Stephen Moffat. And since that is my second favourite era of Doctor Who, I am really okay with that. We could definitely see the budget in this episode. The Tennessee was amazing. I really enjoyed it. I will give so much credit to the first person who can successfully pull off a 10C cosplay. (laughs) Or people. I'm suddenly picturing like a Chinese dragon situation but with LED lights. It'd be very exciting. Mm. When you think about it it's like 10 people in an empty room having this (laughs) emotional scene. But it was incredible. And then also the evacuation of Earth yes was also again did none of this is real <laughs> none, none of this actually exists in reality and it was all very well choreographed i don't care about cgi or effects generally speaking i really only talk about them when they're bad and i can see them <laughs> and they, yes. get, they get into the way of my enjoyment but this was impressive in a way it was like we are throwing everything into our season finale. We are going to make this the best episode. (laughs) I can 
tell that a lot of work, probably hundreds of people put a lot of effort into this. And so I, I want to give them their due and say that it was really well done. I have to say last week, I was like, oh no, the conflict will reach Federation headquarters. I didn't realize that Federation headquarters could just pack up and move to the site of the conflict. <laughs> No one told me that was possible. Did we know? <laughs> I did not know. I was like, whoa, it's a ship. It, it was incredible. That was very anime too. Yeah. I have to say. <laughs> it was like, wow, this is like something out of Macross. But I enjoyed it. And it was also like, we haven't seen the outside of Federation headquarters in a while. Yeah, I didn't so recognize it, it. It really, it was a lot of fun to imagine that that is. I really love and uh, they did this in, you know, Beyond with the Yorktown, and they did it in mm. Boba Fett with whatever that planet that Mando went to that was like one ring thing. Yes. You know, they're like really putting effort into making weird locations that don't look like planets or ships in any way. And I, that's fun. It's another like Agreed. job affects people. I really like how you're letting your imagination lead you. Absolutely. I started to feel at about the halfway mark, like we were definitely going to lose a major character. Obviously, Taka was probably fried, but I was convinced we were going to lose someone else. Mm -hmm. And for a brief shining moment there, I thought it would be Detma. And it wasn't. And then I thought, okay, well, Endoya. I will be really angry to lose Endoya. I have a whole rant prepared about how problematic this is, but at least Book and Tilly are safe. Then Endoya lived. And then we lost Book. And I thought, oh, thank God, that means Tilly and Vance are safe. Because obviously Discovery has a poor history in terms of admirals and explosions and even numbered season finales. And then I became convinced that... Tilly was also going to die and we would lose Vance and basically Michael would lose everyone she loves the most in one terrible incident. Well, and yes, I was not okay. And so I completely, <laughs> completely believed that Book was dead. And I was kind of salty about it because I felt like it was a silly death. But also I was just relieved that this maybe increased Tilly's chances of survival. And then everybody lived. I mentioned last episode that the water orb reminded me of the water orb in the abyss. And they yes. showed that again in the previously on. So even though like they were talking about orbs, but they didn't do that effect this episode, it was still in my mind. And spoilers for a movie from the 90s. <laughs> Ed Harris's character is presumed dead. And his wife has a very similar emotional outburst and everybody has to come in and take care of her and it's a big part of the end of the movie mm. but then ed harris is saved by the aliens and he's fine in, in a very similar look we found this floating human and brought him along is this guy with you like, identical to book and so i was convinced i was like yeah book's not dead because that would go against my completely made up idea that they're redoing the abyss so i understand that nothing has been said to that effect but it does seem like there are very compelling comparisons and obviously there's the arrival thing and also contact i saw someone in our discord compare it to contact and i think this is really cool i think there has not been a lot of really intellectual science fiction cinema mm. ever because that's really <laughs> hard to do and doesn't have a massive audience mm -hmm. and so it's really cool to see star trek take something from three of the iconic examples and i know i just called a james cameron movie that i haven't seen intellectual and i may have cause to regret that. no no it is very intellectual no? the other thing about the abyss is that there is an antagonist there is a Tarka, and much like mm. Tarka, I do not care about him at all. He's worse than Tarka in that he doesn't even have a, a good reason. He's just, he's just ah. bad. He has, you know, a vendetta against the aliens. There were just all these little, all these little things. It just, just makes me think of that movie. But don't feel bad because it's not, like, not to be a James Cameron apologist. <laughs> Yikes. But, but it's a good movie. It, it's a very good 
working class story Mm. plus the intelligent woman and that's what I wanted to say about those three movies Arrival, The Abyss, and Contact all have a woman scientist at the center of them and I think that's kind of (laughs) great and I also think it reminds me of all of the Madam Presidents (laughs) I was about to make that connection (laughs) in in this uh, episode and also of course Michael and Tilly and the fact that we have multiple women scientists and even a non-binary scientist and uh, Reno is an engineer. There's just lots of women out there doing great stuff. It shouldn't be something to celebrate in 2022. Well, no, but I think it's worth taking a moment to appreciate that even a very thin character like Detmer, who is very underwritten, has more intentional characterization than Uhura or Rand got in the 1960s. I would say possibly as much as Beverly Crusher got. I was going to say, unfortunately. And as you know, Beverly is my fave. So that's no shade on her, but most of her characterization is from Gates McFadden's work. Right. And yeah, I loved, I loved the three presidents. Wait, was it three? Yes, because it was was Rillick, Tarina, and unnamed president of Earth. President Stacey Abrams. President Stacey Abrams. My hot take and you've discussed this with me already, is that I don't like that Stacey Abrams is positioned as the president of a xenophobic and paranoid regime, which only a week ago within the story was arguing to bomb Greg instead of making first contact. However, I am prepared to headcanon some sort of parliamentary system where the president is not the only person with whom executive power rests. And so President Stacey Abrams is a wonderful, progressive and peace-minded leader who has to make a lot of compromises because that is the nature of the political system of Earth. We can blame Nadoya for a week ago, right? We can, but I don't want to. I want to believe that Endoya is a flawed product of a flawed system who can do better. And I'm happy to believe that of the Earth President as well. I just think it's unfair to Stacey Abrams to put that on her. Like, find a better cameo for Stacey Abrams, even though obviously I am delighted for her as a Trekkie and I did not understand why she had that scene with Michael because I would not recognise most American politicians without a name tag and I was like oh this is fantastic this is a wonderful middle-aged plus-size black woman leading earth that is beautiful I feel like I've seen her face before I'll look her up later I'm sure she's been in literally everything and I'm just bad with faces and no it was Stacey Abel anyway (laughs) I was like it's weird how there's just this funny little scene with Michael I don't know what that's about but it's nice it's very nice I liked I loved the scene with Michael because she was like Mm. we have a lot of work to do are you ready for it and I was like yeah just put that right into your ad (laughs) like yes um, and so as an American Mm. who recognized Stacey Abrams because Stacey Abrams is one of our very few, I can count on one hand, good politicians. Yes. <laughs> in terms of she has yet to have messed up in a way, you know, she's yet to compromise. That's the best way to put it. She has yet to compromise yeah. her ideals. And I think that's why she hasn't been elected. <laughs> and so I give them a pass. Like, I forgot. See, I didn't have that criticism because I did not think of Earth as xenophobic. I literally did not imagine it was she was just president of Earth and Earth is where I live. And all I wanted to do was move to Georgia so I could vote for her for governor. Like, that was the reaction I had. I think that's the reaction you're meant to have. And it's just that thing where they forget again that they have an audience all around the world who won't have the same emotional connection with a truly outstanding and inspiring woman. Like, I I am not criticising Abrams in any way. I'm a big fan of her work. Her thing is, look what we can do when I work together. And so I was very happy for her to get this dream of having a role on her favourite show, the show that she has credited with giving her the ideas 
to yes. believe in a better world and work for it and say, you know what, I, I shouldn't just accept no. I should work really hard to make yes happen. So she sort of represents that Picard quote for me that like you can do everything right and still lose. Yeah. Uh, and that's nothing about you. And it's just like, so yay, Stacey Abrams. So I, I was very happy <laughs> with it. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, please don't apologize. I think you are having the correct reaction and I am being kind of nitpicky and contrarian and correct, but also unfair. I think I'm unfair is the word for, for my feelings. And I also want to say Abrams is also a romance novelist and a, an author of thrillers. I 100% believe she has an AO3 account and I kind of hope we get to see more of President Stacey Abrams and more world building for Earth mm -hmm. to make it more complicated and more interesting and more positive than what we've seen so far. Yeah, so like crazy comment, I guess. What if season five Discovery is also season five of Enterprise? <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I like the bit where we uh, get in Bacula and Blaylock and you know, <laughs> send them out to do their thing, you know. I don't think you meant it that literally, but I do. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I wouldn't say no to that. But I meant, I meant metaphorically. But <laughs> Metaphor, yeah. yeah. It does make me think, you know, Enterprise skipped the whole bit where we went from the post-atomic horror to a post-scarcity utopia. Right. And that side of the story has always been really interesting to me. And so if we got a version of that with Earth's recovery from bombardment and also at least a century of isolation. Exactly. Another thing that occurs to me is that these last two seasons, you know, mostly this season, the first episode opens with the Federation having dropped its cloaking device and opening its headquarters to the world. And then the 10C are persuaded to drop their hyperfield, which we don't know what threats are out there in, you know, extra galactic space. <laughs> Maybe that's not safe for the 10 seat. But anyway, and then we have Earth dropping its metaphorical defences and rejoining the Federation. And it's kind of a really nice Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall thing that's present throughout the whole season. Really like it. Yeah, I had issues with this season, but the ideas or the concept or like the overarching themes I, I think mm. were very solid and came through. It was the details that I had some problems with, but that's, you know, that's just growing pains and pacing and they're just not great at all of the stories they want to tell sometimes. I definitely feel like we had a 10 episode season yeah. that got a last minute order for, for an extra three. Maybe for Netflix reasons, which is kind of awkward given how it went down for Netflix. I think it would have worked best as an 11 episode season to like get the details that we got in those three extra episodes. Yes, right. Together. And, and smush them, smush them, yeah. They were just, yeah, they were yeah. elongated and then that meant the pacing was really weird and it just didn't work. But that's, you know, again, those are nitpicks. That's not. Yeah. The pacing in the first half of the season was fine. We need to talk about Tilly and Vance and my green son. I'm so happy to see your green son back. R.I.P. your green-blooded son. No! We're not talking about that. <laughs> I don't believe for a minute that Elnor is dead. But we'll talk about that next I week. I really thought, okay, so just crazy speculation. Just so that I can get it out there. I yes. really thought the Borg Queen was going to assimilate Elnor's body. And that's how... They were going to bring him back to life and she was going to be like using Elnor and, but then they were going to like excise, you know, exercise the Borg Queen and, and just mm. get Elnor back. So I, I really, until Agnes was speaking as the Borg Queen, I 100% was thinking it was going to involve Elnor's body. I firmly believe that he will be back, and that is largely based on uh, my close study of Evan Evagora's 
Instagram and he tends to post more when he's not filming and he had some silent patches there where I assume he was back on set. So, uh, <laughs> welcome back your green son and his... His uh, was tellerate, he tellerate boyfriend. boyfriend? Yeah, tellerate yes. boyfriend. And everything with Vance and Tilly was so great. Oh my gosh. Obviously I wanted them to make out with two hours to go and they're alone on the bridge or whatever it was and before drunk. they die. And drunk. What else are you going to do uh, in <laughs> fan fiction? But realistically, I like that the character who was introduced as the most junior and green of cadets and this wonderful seasoned admiral had this moment where they got to bond as something close to equals. Before we leave my green son behind, I just want to mm. say that although he is clearly dating Tellerite, he definitely has a crush on Tilly and it was adorable. Everyone has a crush on Tilly. Everyone has a crush on Tilly. But they were so cute. All of the cadets, her speech to the cadets was a perfect way to start this episode. And I really, I love the cadets. I love Tilly and the cadets. When she said that she was lucky because she found her her path, mm. I'm misquoting, but she basically said, I don't have any regrets because I figured out what where I belonged in the world and I got to be that for a while. And I was just like, I can't handle no, the fact no. that, that like, you know, supporting the next generation is, is Tilly's, it makes perfect sense for Tilly. It's such a great place for her. And I have wanted to start the Academy since forever. So let's have that series. But the Tilly and Vance scene where they were discussing regrets was the most emotional. Like, I, as amazing as Sinequa's performance was and as earned as the 10C and book conversation was, that conversation between Tilly and Vance about regrets and parenting yeah destroyed me <laughs> i was sobbing and then the next day i watched the joy luck club it wasn't oh even the next my. day it was later in that same day because i woke up early to watch discovery yesterday <laughs> but solely so that i could cry about mothers and daughters for two hours <laughs> because i needed it i needed that catharsis after tilly's comments about how she had this hard relationship with her mother but she always knew she was loved and I needed to hear that from Tilly like I I needed yeah. closure on Tilly's feelings about leaving that relationship behind it was so so beautiful and you know Vance was also introduced as yes he's a seasoned admiral but he's a seasoned admiral who was isolated yeah. he didn't have the infrastructure of the federation and he didn't even have he didn't have his wife he didn't have his daughter he didn't have it he couldn't have those important relationships mm. he didn't even have the foundation of attending starfleet academy probably yeah so him getting to have this heart to heart with tilly that i completely agree I hope to read multiple fics about their two hours, <laughs> but mm. I really appreciated their bonding and that I just that scene was just magic to me. It was exactly what I needed and wanted from Star Trek, and it was extra special that it was in the middle of this amazing season finale that was like so solid and and. I don't even know how to describe it, but like, I guess, impressive on all these other levels, production values and acting and writing and, and effects and just everything all coming together to have this personal scene and this personal reaction on my part to that scene. Mm. I was just, I felt like this is why I watched Star Trek. <laughs> I definitely watch Star Trek to have feelings about fictional people in space. Relic and Vance also had a scene together at the end, and I just want to say, if they want me to stop shipping Vance with everyone he interacts with, Other they're going wife. to have to... <laughs> well, yeah, but he's going to have to interact with his wife on screen, and maybe she and his daughter can get, like, 
names and jobs. They were like practically skipping at the end. They were all all in white and skipping and like yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it didn't help it more make them more real to me. It I was no, almost like no. maybe his wife and daughter are delusions and he, he doesn't actually have them because they don't seem like real people to me no no the matching white dresses they're not matching matching but they're both wearing white dresses and it's very instagram yeah it was, ready. there was definitely a filter on it yeah like, there was... and it reminded me very much of the scenes could you try again <laughs> Siri, sorry. It reminded me very much of the scenes with Jennifer Sisko as perceived by the prophets, where she's wearing the pastel pink one-shoulder dress. This on the web. Siri has opinions. Siri wants to know if Jennifer Sisko's death was orchestrated by the prophets. Ah. Let's uh, discuss that in another episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, but she also reminded me of Dream to Pell <laughs> in yeah. that, that one episode. And Tapel is a... I have, you know, been very vocal about my shipping of Janeway and Tuvok, and people are mm. always angry at me about this because they're like, he is very married. And I'm like, yeah, but the show didn't care. So wh why am I being required to care? His wife was not a character the same way Vance's wife and child are not characters. And so if they don't want us to ship them with other people or each other, uh, I could get behind that. Uh, they're just going to have to do something about that. And we were talking earlier about how great the women are in this series, and I agree. And I think we need to extend that level of thought and characterization to Vance's family. At least a name. At least a name. And I think I want her to be a scientist, but a scientist who has become some sort of senior administrator. So she's dealing with politics, but she doesn't enjoy it. Mm. She's good at it, but it's not what brings her joy. And she's wondering if she needs to change careers. Uh, so give me a name and I can do the rest of the heavy lifting. Very good. <laughs> yes. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to Andy Matterpod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr, all at antimatterpod, and write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com. If you like us, leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us next week when we will finally be discussing the first four episodes of Star Trek Picard's second season and how Elnor is not dead. <laughs> That's right. But Seven is a superhero. <laughs> <laughs>